Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Scott Lipkowitz, and you're listening to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. British hopes that the American War for Independence would be brought to a swift conclusion began to wane in the early months of 1777. Despite brilliant victories over Washington and his Continentals in the battles of Long Island and White Plains during the previous year, the rebellious colonies were no closer to being pacified. Success in and around New York City was offset by a failed operation along the Lake Champlain Corridor and negated, at least in terms of morale, by Washington's stunning triumphs at Trenton and Princeton. After nearly two years of open warfare, Britain had little to show for its efforts, nor was there an end in sight. The Americans, it seemed, were determined to fight on. It was against this backdrop of stalemate and fatigue that, in early 1777, British Lieutenant General John Burgoyne proposed a daring plan to end the war once and for all with a powerful thrust from Canada down along the Lake Champlain and Hudson River corridors that would permanently sever the head of the rebellion in New England from its dependencies to the south. Frustrated by American perseverance and desperate for a war-winning solution, King George III and his Secretary of State for the Colonies, Lord George Germain, quickly embraced Burgoyne's vision. Yet, as Kevin J. Weddle observes in The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, published by Oxford University Press, the Saratoga campaign, as it came to be known, was not the panacea those in the British High Command assumed it to be. Joining us today to discuss why that was so, and why the eventual American victory at Saratoga became a pivotal moment in the American Revolution, and indeed in American history generally, is author and historian Kevin J. Weddle. Kevin, Welcome to New Books in Military History. Well, thanks, Scott. Really happy to be here. Now, can you give us uh, maybe a little potted bio and discuss how you became captivated by the 1777 Saratoga campaign? Yeah, sure. I'm a professor of military theory and strategy at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I served almost 30 years on active duty in the Army and retired as a colonel. Served all over the world, went to West Point, and then after that went, went into the Army and the Corps of Engineers. I was a combat engineer for all that time and served at West Point in the History Department for a short time. And then toward the end of my career, after battalion command, a couple combat tours, I was assigned here to the Army War College where I was the uh, director of the Advanced Strategic Art Program, which is sort of a roughly sort of an honors program here at the War College, and then ended my uniform career as the Deputy Dean of Academics here at at Carlisle. After that, I was fortunate enough to get on as a civilian faculty member uh, after that. So I'm from Minnesota. I've got uh, a wife and a daughter who's married to a naval aviator, uh, which is one of those things where, you know, as as a career Army guy, and my daughter, by the way, was born at West Point, uh, kind of makes you wonder where you went wrong, you know, your daughter marrying a, a naval aviator. Uh, just <laughs> kidding, just kidding. I really, he's a great guy. So that's that's it for me, as far as that goes. And as far as Saratoga goes, being at West Point, both, both as a cadet and then later as a history instructor, military history instructor, really got me interested in the American Revolution. There's There's all sorts of if you've ever been to West Point, you know that there's all sorts of Revolutionary War fortifications at West Point because West Point was a was a very important, strategically important location along the Hudson River. 
And so, you know, I got interested in that. And then when I taught the American Revolution as, a, as an instructor at West Point, it got me even more interested. And when I went to get my PhD in history at Princeton, I was there primarily as a Civil War historian. I worked with the, the great Civil War historian, Jim McPherson. And, uh, but I also did a lot of uh, Revolutionary War stuff as part of my studies, and it really sort of rekindled the, the interest in the American Revolution while I was at, at Princeton. So that, that really kind of got me, got me going with the American Revolution. Always been interested in it, even when I went off to do Civil War, but always wanted to get my hands back in it uh, as well. The complete victory is going to quickly become the definitive account of the Saratoga campaign. And you observe that the campaign was lost by the British and significantly also won by the Americans. And the latter fact, I think, is frequently obfuscated in the literature. You argue that one of the key factors in determining these outcomes is the concept of grip. What is grip? How does it relate to military leadership? And does it operate on different levels? You know, for example, can you display grip at the tactical level, but not the strategic or operational levels and still be successful? Or is it necessary to exert a firm grip in all three domains? Oh, great. That's that's a great question. You know, I came across this this concept of grip when I was preparing some lessons, some lectures actually here at the War College. And it's a it's a term that that uh, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery coined. And, and what, what he meant it to mean was a commander who has a firm grasp of what's going on in his unit in terms of making sure that he's got all of his, his logistics squared away and his, his soldiers know exactly what to do and all the officers know what the plan is. Somebody who really has a, has a firm control about, about the, the operation coming up. So that's that's kind of what Monty meant for grip, and of course he always wanted he always wanted his uh, his officers to have have grip, and and that makes sense. I mean, any any good commander wants his his uh, his leaders to have that those attributes. But I, I so I, I really like that term, and so I expanded a little bit further out to say that not only does the commander have to have that kind of a grip, understanding what's going on with his unit. But he also has to have, he or she now, of course, also has to have a little bit more expansive notion of grip in that they have to also understand the terrain. They have to understand how operations are unfolding and be able to take all that information and pull it together and make good decisions that make sense, but also are, are imaginative and creative. So it's a, it's a much wider concept of, of grip than, than Monty's, which was a little bit more narrow. It, it's more in tune, I think, to, if I can compare it to anything, more in tune or more or closer to what Claus was called genius. And so I think, I think you're right in that it's important for a commander to have grip in, especially I'm talking about a senior commander here, of course, because junior commanders aren't dealing in the operational and the strategic level. But a senior commander has to be able to have grip in all of those areas. He's got to he's got to understand the the, the tactical, the operational, and the and the strategic. And I, again, I'm talking about the the very senior commanders. And if you you know from reading the book that that I really focus on those those senior commanders. I don't ignore the junior guys, but I, I 
really focus on on those folks. So I'm talking about people like you know Washington and Burgoyne and Howe, Gates, Schuyler, uh, all these uh, very senior leaders. So so yes, you can have grip at the tactical level. You can be very very competent and in fact excellent at the tactical level, but you might not have that wider notion of grip at the operational and strategic level. Vice versa, you could probably have really good grip at the strategic level, but you're not all that great at the tactical level. It's, it's, it's not your biggest area of expertise. So I think, I think commanders could have different levels of grip. And in the Saratoga campaign, I think most of the commanders had pretty good tactical acumen. Both sides, I think, displayed in, 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 at various points in the campaign, of course, differently. But just about all the commanders displayed pretty good tactical competence. And in fact, I think at the colonel and below level, they were very, very good on both sides at the tactical level. I mean, they, they cared about, they led from the front, they cared about their soldiers, they cared about the mission, uh, they understood what they were trying to do. They were, they were all very, very good. Where, where the, the, the difference comes is up into the operational and the strategic level. And there, I think the Americans had, had a bit of an edge. Yeah, if we look at the, you're, you take a very balanced approach to both critiquing and you know, praising both sides where appropriate. Lingering on the, the British high command, George III, Lord Germain, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, and Lieutenant General John Burgoyne, who, as you noted, would lead the campaign. You know, at the strategic level, at least, as you kind of noted, they don't really exhibit any grip. So what was their strategy for the 1777 campaign? How did it develop? And what was the goal? Yeah, well, this is part of their problem. And that is the development of the strategy, the military strategy for 1777. And, and you know from reading the book, I mean, I spend a lot of time on, on this. I've got a full chapter on how they developed their strategy and, and an entire appendix that, that demonstrates why they had the problems that they had. So in late 1776, Burgoyne arrives in London. He had been a part of the first invasion up Lake Champlain toward Crown Point in 1776, uh, failed. Well, failed. It was it was canceled when uh, the oncoming uh, winter weather. They didn't get it nearly as far as they they had hoped they would. And so Burgoyne comes back from London, and he's got some ideas on how he thinks the British ought to conduct the war in 1777, and he touts it as a as a war winner. And he he pre- presents his his proposals to the king and Lord Germain. Lord Germain, of course, as you said, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, he's the primary cabinet member responsible for the conduct of military operations in North America. So Burgoyne comes back and he's got this very imaginative, very complex plan that calls for three converging columns, two coming down from Canada. One is going to go up Lake Champlain. And when I say up Lake Champlain, I mean south on Lake Champlain because Lake Champlain flows north. So he's going up Lake Champlain toward Port Ticonderoga. That's going to be the main column. This is what he's proposing. And it's going to take Port Ticonderoga, the, the, the major fortification that, that guards that famous uh, invasion route from Canada. 
And then moving on down south, and they will ultimately end up in Albany, New York. The other column from Canada will go down the Mohawk River Valley through New York and will converge on Albany as well. And that, that smaller column, uh, their goal was not only to, to assist Burgoyne's column coming down from Canada, but also to clear the Mohawk River of Patriot militia and Patriot threats along there, and also to divert Patriot attention away from Burgoyne as he's coming south. And then finally, what, what Burgoyne is also calling for is for the British main army, which is in New York City, to come up the Hudson River and also link up, up at Albany. So, so that's the primary objective is to have these three columns arrive at Albany, converge on Albany. The idea is they would cut the, the, the more rebellious colonies in New England away from the what, what they thought were, were the, le- the less rebellious colonies with more, more loyalist populations in the middle colonies and the southern colonies. So splitting those two factions apart. And then, and then also, as part of his proposal, he, he had these kind of vague notions that they would conduct some more combat operations toward the Connecticut River uh, up there in New England. So that's, that's Burgoyne's plan. And this was very, very popular. I mean, the king loved it. Germain really liked it as well. It was almost, they, they almost took it as an act of faith that they need to use that Lake Champlain corridor coming down from Canada. That was the way to go. So he, he makes this proposal and he's in London. And so he's there with the decision makers. He's there with the king. He's there with Lord Germain. And so he's able to you know, present his plan uh, directly to them. Meanwhile, in New York City, the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America, with the exception of Canada, is General Sir William Howe. General Howe has the the main army there in New York City, and of course, he has just finished his campaign to seize New York, to seize Long Island, New York, Manhattan, and he's chased Washington across New Jersey, across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Shortly after that, of course, there's going to be the battles of Trenton and Princeton, where Washington will stop the bleeding, so to speak. So, so Howe has just finished that campaign, and so he's also looking for his own strategy. He also proposes his own strategy for, for winning the war. And what he proposes to the king and Lord Germain is very, very different from what Burgoyne has proposed while he's there in London. Howe sends a, sends a series of messages, letters, across the Atlantic to London proposing a different strategy. And that strategy is he wants to take his, his big army, move it to Philadelphia, where, of course, the seat of Congress is, Continental Congress, and then hopefully, hopefully get Washington to come out to defend Philadelphia, and then he can fight and destroy Washington in a big, decisive battle. Howe recognizes, especially after Trenton and Princeton, that the only way he's going to win the revolution, the only way the Brits are going to defeat the revolution is to defeat Washington and that main rebel army. So those are the competing strategies that Germain has got to be charged with reconciling these two different strategies. The problem that Howe is operating under is he's 3,000 miles away. Whereas the other person who's proposed a strategy, he's right there in London. So you've got poor Howe sitting there 3,000 miles away 
and he's sending messages that could take six to eight weeks to go one way. And then, of course, reply is going to take six to eight weeks going the other way. So that makes it really, really hard to coordinate these two competing strategies. So what ends up happening, and I I tried to, to show how this works in one of my appendices, where you can see where all these different letters and orders are sort of crossing uh, as they're going back and forth across the Atlantic. And so when you have a, a civilian leader like Lord George Germain, who wants to micromanage the war in North America, having those huge distances in the 18th century makes it very, very difficult for him to micromanage that. So what ends up, what ends up happening is the king and Germain basically approve both plans. And because they approve both plans, both commanders operate on the assumption that the other folks are going to either help them or won't even get involved. How, for example, he, because he gets approved, his plan gets approved, he sends a letter to General Carleton, Sir Guy Carleton, who's the commander in chief up in Canada. And so he's the guy who will basically prepare Burgoyne for his operations south uh, to uh, Lake Champlain. House sends Carlton a letter saying, you need to tell Burgoyne that I'm not going to be able to help him because I'm off to Philadelphia. And I don't know how long that's going to take me. At the same time, though, Burgoyne says, well, they've already told General Howe that once he finishes with Philadelphia, he's got to help me. So I'm not worried about that. I don't really care about that letter that Howe just sent. I'm going to be operating under the assumption that Howe is still going to be coming up the Hudson River. And so they're all talking at cross purposes, and the end result is what was supposed to be a single coordinated strategy for 1777 turns into two separate strategies that are not mutually supporting. And and that's basically going to fritter away British combat power in 1777. It's going to allow the Americans to either counter them or defeat them individually, counter them in terms of, of Washington maintaining the army around Philadelphia, and of course, ultimately, Burgoyne will end up surrendering in October of 1777. So the strategy, one of my big arguments is the battles of the big, big battles that we know of and that we think of and that we remember as the big battles of Saratoga that take place in September and October of 1777 are almost... They're almost an anticlimax. I mean, I, that's, I, I shouldn't say that because they were both brutal, vicious battles and they were obviously important, but they're almost anticlimax because the strategy was so flawed that you, you could almost sense that, of course, we're looking at it from you know, 200 plus years away, but you could almost sense a dis impending disaster uh, with the way their strategy formulation unfolded. What you highlighted there also brings to the fore something you refer to in the book as the tyranny of space and time. And, and you touched on it a little bit, the vast distances involved and the, the lag in communications. Was there any antidote that either, you know, Germain is the, you know, civilian leader or just even that Burgoyne or, or maybe Howe could have introduced that would have allowed them to, you know, mitigate the strategic incoherence that is caused by these elements? Or is it just a foregone conclusion that it, it was impossible given 
a lack of modern, you know, information and communication technologies? Well, I, you know, one of the things I used to tell my cadets when I, when I taught them the Saratoga campaign was, you know, when we, we look at the complexity of Burgoyne's operation, these three conversion columns and all that, of course, we all know that the column coming up from the Hudson River doesn't, never happens, the big column. But I used to tell my students that, you know, you look at how complex this was and how, and it really was imagined, I really was an imaginative strategy that Burgoyne proposes, but it would be hard to pull off even today, even with our modern communications capabilities. It would be, it'd be tough to pull off because like Clausewitz says, even the simplest things in war are very, very difficult. So I think, you know, the, the, the best thing Germain and the king could have done was to, to not try to micromanage this war, to provide how in particular, because how is the commander in chief? to provide Howe with the resources he needs to do and give him the basic guidance, some, some very basic guidance. And you tell him that, you know, I trust you to come up with a plan to achieve that guidance. So your basic guidance must be, listen, uh, General Howe, you need to track down and destroy Washington's army. That's what you need to do. You tell me what you need to do that. That would be by far and away the, the best way to do that. Pick a commander that you trust, a competent commander, Give him the, 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 the overall guidance, the, what is the overall objective, a political objective. Political objective, obviously, crush the rebellion. The military objective as part of that has got to be destroy Washington's army. Uh, General Howe, what do you need to accomplish that? We'll do the, the level best to give you whatever you need, and then we're going to trust you to go out and do it. Now, now it's interesting when... Burgoyne comes up with his plan and he presents it to the he presents it in a in written form to the king and Lord Lord Germain. He also provided him with a throwaway option, what we call in the military a throwaway option. You know, you, you come up with options for your commander, and the, as a staff officer say, I, I your commander says, I want you to give me three options on how to capture that city. Says, okay. So you come up with three options. You come up with the one you want the boss to pick, <laughs> and you come up with two other options, one of which might be a, just a, a kind of a silly option, throwaway option. Well, Burgoyne also presented a throwaway, what I would call a throwaway option to the king and Germain. And that throwaway option was use the power of, of their unsurpassed sea power, take the British army in Canada, load it up on transports, move it to New York City, link it up with Howe's big army, that already the biggest army in, in North America there. Now you'll have a huge army. Use that army to track down Washington and do whatever it takes to track him down and destroy him. Uh, and Burgoyne, he, he, he offers that option in about a sentence out of a, a multi-page memorandum uh, where he, of course, getting into great detail on his Lake Champlain plan in just one or two sentences on this other thing. He's, oh, yeah, you could do this too, but, you know, I don't think that would work as well. And so, of course, the King and Germain loved the Lake Champlain plan. They didn't even consider this other plan. I think his throwaway option would have had a much better chance of success. Whether it would have succeeded, I don't know, but it would have had a much better chance of success. So, so the bottom line, Scott, to your question is, I think, you know, the way to, the way to handle the tyranny of distance issue is you, you provide your... First of all, you got to have the right people in place. So if you trust Howe, if Howe is the guy, you you provide him with the with the mission, 
he tells you what he's he needs. You provide him as best you can with with those resources, and you let him do his job. I think that that's the way you handle the uh, the tyranny of distance. Now, to to Germain to Germain's credit, he all, he tells Burgoyne up front, look, you need to use your initiative. You need to to make your decisions based on what's going on on the ground. I can't tell you here from London you know, how things might change and you need to, you need to handle, handle it yourself and use your own initiative. Well, Burgoyne never does that. He follows the letter of his orders all the way through to the bitter and destructive end. And so that's, that's a problem with Burgoyne, not with, not with Germain in that, in that particular case. You just touched on what I'm about to ask in a little bit in your, in your response and the anecdote about the one sentence throwaway and Burgoyne's initiative are revealing of his temperament, which obviously, once the campaign actually gets underway in July of 1777, exerts considerable influence on its outcome. Historiographically, Burgoyne has been on the receiving end of a considerable amount of ridicule. The gentleman Johnny pejorative certainly seems to have struck, despite recent efforts, you know, by the likes of Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy to rehabilitate his reputation. And you have this quote from Alexander Hamilton, where he observes about Burgoyne that, quote, the enterprising spirit he, Burgoyne, has credit for may easily be fanned by his vanity into rashness, end quote, which seems to back up this historiographic judgment. Is this how you view Burgoyne? And is it how we should understand the relationship between his personality and his subsequent actions during the Saratoga campaign? Yeah, I think, you know, I think... Burgoyne is just such an interesting guy. It's just too bad that there's not a whole lot of his personal papers out there. And he's, I find him a a tragic character. I, I find that, I mean, I kind of like the guy. And I guess one of the reasons why I, I did sort of like him is he really takes care of the troops. I mean, the troops really, really like Burgoyne. I mean, he was one of these guys who, who looked out for the troops it was sort of rare in the in the 18th century, you know, very caste system British army where you know the the, the senior leaders sort of you know ignored the troops, but Burgoyne didn't, and uh, so that that certainly appeals to me. In, in his his earlier career, I mean, he was very interested in training, and there wasn't what a whole heck of a lot of training that was done back then. So he was very interested in training his troops. You know, cutting down on casualties, obviously, when you've got well-trained troops. So he really cared for his guys. I, I, I really like that about him. I, I think one of his, his – but I think he was he was very much overconfident. And, and certainly he was vain. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. And when I think you, you, you combine those things with the fact that this is the first time he's ever commanded independently. And even even an independent command in Europe is much different from an independent command in the middle of the American wilderness. Uh, an independent command in Europe, you can easily get guidance from your boss, maybe you know a day or two away at the most by sending a you know a couple of messengers on horseback. You'll be able to get some some good guidance from your boss. There, you know, it takes weeks for him to get any guidance, even if he's even if he's actively asking for it during the during the Saratoga campaign, he is by himself, especially once he heads south from Ticonderoga. And so, you know, when you combine that, his vanity, his overconfidence, and his easy victory at Ticonderoga really fed that overconfidence. 
And then the fact that he's he's new to independent command and now he's in the midst of the American wilderness where there's no assistance whatsoever, all that is going to feed into his his issues as the campaign dragged on and on and on. And I, I, I really think some of those things are, are part of his downfall. Now, on the American side, Washington and the Continentals and the supporting militia are obviously less terrorized by space or time or even just an inability to operate in the theater. But given that Washington is beholden to a Congress full of delegates, often harboring regional animosities, he's dependent upon unreliable and fiercely independent patriot militias, and he has his own gallery of idiosyncratic officers to contend with. The potential for strategic coherence there seems pretty rife, Um, but yet you observe and argue that this doesn't happen. Why is that? I I think, you know, I'm I'm just a big fan of Washington. I think it's just his force of personality. And he's he's able to, for the most part, he's able to pick good people surrounding him, his his family, you know, his his. His key staff officers are, are pretty loyal. He, he comes up with this, you know, the modified Fabian strategy that can really be politically fraught uh, because, because you're very, you know, it's a very reactive. You have to react to the enemy. You're, it's very seldom that you can be proactive with that kind of strategy. Of course, we see him do that at Trenton and Princeton, of course. But but he he just has a, a good sense for uh, for what needs to happen in order for him him to win this this campaign or this this war. The, the other thing he has is he's got the big picture in mind. He always has the big picture in mind, and I think that's what really hurts Howe as a commander in chief. So I as as you as you know, and I, I don't know if you were going to bring this up, but I compare and contrast. Howe as a commander-in-chief and Washington as a commander-in-chief. And even though I think Howe had the right idea on a potential winning strategy for Great Britain in this war, I think he was not a very good commander-in-chief, whereas Washington was an excellent commander-in-chief because he's looking at the war as a whole. Howe is not. Howe is laser-focused on what his army is doing, and that's about it. And even when Burgoyne moves into Howe's area of operations. I mean, once once Howe, excuse me, once Burgoyne gets to Fort Ticonderoga and starts moving into New York, he, he comes under Howe's umbrella, yet Howe pretty much ignores him and marches off to Philadelphia. Washington doesn't do that. I mean, he's looking at all of his different theaters and he is trying to coordinate those different theaters more or less successfully. I mean, there's some problems here and there. And as you know, I don't I don't give Washington a, a complete you know I don't whitewash Washington's problems, especially in the period before the campaign kicks off, the Saratoga campaign kicks off. But I think in general he's got the best sense for what it's going to take to win the war. He's got a best the best sense for what it what what needs to happen as the commander in chief and what he needs to do as the commander in chief. And he's got his hands in in all the other theaters, the the Hudson River corridor area. The Northern Department under Schuyler and then later Gates, of course, and his own area of operations down there in New Jersey uh, and Pennsylvania. So I think it's just this better sense of being a commander in chief and how to be a commander in chief. 
you just brought up Skylar and Horatio Gates. Skylar begins the defense against Burgoyne's invasion and is superseded by Gates towards the end of the campaign. How did those two officers shape the American response and how did their interactions with Washington complicate his ability to manage the Northern Department? Yeah, well, the, the, to me, it, it started very badly. And if you, and, and I, I've got a whole chapter on this, as, as you know, in the period before the campaign even kicks off. So I'm talking March through May, early June. There's really no unity of command in the Northern Department. So, and I, I can't remember the date off the top of my head, but <clears throat> sometime in March, Schuyler, who had been uh, criticized for his performance in the 1776 campaigns, wants to go down to Congress. He leaves his headquarters in Albany, <clears throat> goes down to Congress, and he's going to argue his case. And so he, le- he basically leaves the Northern Department. At around the same time, Congress has uh, appointed Horatio Gates to command Fort Ticonderoga. This is the same position he had in, in late 1776. So when Gates goes up to Ticonderoga, Schuyler has already left. So Gates says, well, I'm not going to Ticonderoga. I'm going to take basically take de facto command of the entire department and make my headquarters at Albany. So you have this situation where the, the commander of the Northern Department is in Philadelphia and a guy who's supposed to be commanding at Fort Ticonderoga instead is at Albany and basically assuming command of the Northern Department. And so what, what you have then is you have no real unity of command. Who's the commander? I mean, there's big confusion on who is really the commander of the Northern Department. Now, ultimately, Congress will settle that and they'll 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 appoint Schuyler as the true commander of the Northern Department, but but it takes them a couple months to do that, and neither Washington nor Congress will step in and eliminate that confusion. And so in my mind, what happens is Ticonderoga basically gets short shrift because you've got the, the commander of, the, the person who's supposed to be commanding at Ticonderoga is instead in Albany, and he never goes up to Ticonderoga, even though he did a good job as commanding, uh, as commander of Ticonderoga earlier uh, in the war. And so he certainly knows how to best defend that fort. But instead, he's sending basically messages to commanders up there at Ticonderoga. But he doesn't go up there himself. And at the same time, the, the guy who's technically really the commander is down in Philadelphia. So you have this, this muddled command and control situation. And, and Washington and Congress, I, I take them to task for not settling that, that command issue. And so even though everyone assumes that the British are going to conduct some other invasion from Canada, they have taken their eyes off the ball in the spring of 1777. And that's going to lead to some problems. So you've got these, these two commanders, Gates and Schuyler. They're, they're much more concerned about their own their own reputation, they're, they're more concerned about their own prestige during that period than they are making sure that the Northern Department is, is in the best position to defend against any future invasion coming down from Canada. The end result of that, I think, is Ticonderoga is woefully unprepared. And so by the time they settle the command and control situation, they put 
Skyler firmly in place. Gates leaves in a huff and goes to Philadelphia to argue his own case. But Skyler's now back in charge. You got a couple, uh, you know, a new commander, Arthur St. Clair, comes in just a few weeks before Burgoyne comes down from Canada. And so, so you've got a situation that's just, it's just ripe for disaster. And of course, that's what happens when Burgoyne is able to, to seize Fort Ticonderoga after, you know, just a couple day uh, siege and almost bloodlessly. Just a, a, a stunning defeat for the uh, American cause there in July of 1777. One thing that you highlight also throughout the book and which kind of touched on there is the friction between Gates and Washington. And there are competing, maybe, I don't know, cabals, maybe it's not the right word, but competing elements within Congress that supports both. Is Gates's political ambition, and he comes off in the book as a inveterate political intriguer, is that a key cause of his inability to really perceive the threat and actually focus on what's on the ground? Is he trying in this instance to grandstand and, and show that he's the better candidate for commander in chief? Uh, you know, I don't think I don't think that's happening in the spring of 77. I just think he ha- I mean, he really coveted that position of commander of the northern department. And so I think he thinks that, well, I, you know, I'm the senior guy up here and, and Skyler's nowhere to be found. I better take charge. I think it's as simple as that. And, and of course, he definitely covets that position. So I think he thinks, you know, if I do a good job up here, they're going to they're going to just leave me in command up here. And he gets along really well with all the, the, the New Englanders. And so if he needs militia from New England, he gets along really well with those folks, whereas Schuyler does not. And you're you're absolutely right. There's a there's a Schuyler faction in Congress and there's a Gates faction in Congress. And they're they're going to play. They're going to clash as we get toward the, the end of the spring of 1777, and then later when Schuyler is ultimately relieved, uh, they're going to clash again in Congress. And in one case, Schuyler is going to win there in uh, spring of 77, and then Gates is going to come out on top on, in early August of 1777. So I, I, don't think, I don't think he's really doing anything super malicious during the spring of 70, 1777. I think the cabal or they're trying to undermine Washington really comes later. I think for sure, though, he thinks that he's a better general than George Washington. I don't think there's any doubt about, about that throughout this whole period. I don't think there's any doubt that he thinks he's, he's a better general. And you can tell from the, the letters that they're exchanging during this, that spring period where Gates is uh, appealing to Washington for, for more, you know, more troops and more, particularly more supplies tents. I, 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 I show this exchange of, of letters about tents, and it's just very, very petty. And really, this is where you really see Gates starting to treat Washington almost in an insubordinate manner, which is not something you'd see Schuyler do. So he's, he's feeling his oats a little bit. I don't think he's trying to undermine Washington by, at this point in any way, but he certainly does not think a whole lot of Washington. Now, Burgoyne's vision for the campaign, as you noted earlier, included a diversionary thrust down the Mohawk River from Lake Ontario. That was led by uh, Colonel St. Leger and is a perfect foil for the almost bloodless victory, as you mentioned, at Ticonderoga, because it results in a British defeat. 
How important was the successful defense of Fort Stanwix in central New York to the American effort to impede Burgoyne's advance? And forgive me, I forget if he's a colonel or a major, but uh, Gansevoort, who leads the defense and ultimately withstands the siege. Is he an example of someone that possesses true grip? Yeah, I, th- I think I, I think the American successful defense at Stanwix is important for, for two reasons. One is just, just operationally, it's very important because it stops that one column cold that's coming down from Canada. It's not a huge column, but it's important because it's, it's, it's fairly large, it's threatening, and it would certainly draw American forces away from Burgoyne, easing Burgoyne's, because you gotta, you've got to face them one way or another, allowing Burgoyne easier easier trip down to Albany. So it's very, very important militarily. But it's also important morale-wise. I mean, if, you know, in, in early July 1777, the Americans lose Ticonderoga. I mean, it's a huge, stunning defeat. You can't underemphasize how important and, and how impactful the loss of Ticonderoga was to the American psyche. I mean, they, they, you know, the American people have been told, those who on the Patriot side, the American people have been told that it was impregnable, there was no way the Brits could get past Ticonderoga, and yet we lose it almost overnight. And so, on the other hand, you've got Stanwicks, which also, you know, obviously they're different. They're, they're, it's different terrain. It's different, you know, there's a lot of different, no two things are exactly alike. But but the contrast is striking because you've got Stanwicks where Colonel, it's a Colonel Gansevoort. Colonel Gansevoort and his garrison are outnumbered at least three to one, probably a little bit more than three to one, about the same odds, actually a little bit worse odds than we're at Ticonderoga. So he's outnumbered three to one, yet he's able to hold off for 20 days and, and basically defeat this uh, this attempt from the British to go down the Mohawk River. So it's a huge, huge morale boost. So when 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 he does that successfully, it comes almost on the heels of the, the great American victory at Bennington. And so you've got these two twin victories and it really, really improves America morale. I mean, it's a it's a catalyst to help bring out more and more militia. And so it's a it's a big, big victory. And, you know, Gansevoort is I'm uh, you could probably tell from from the tone of the book, uh, Scott, but I really am impressed with Gansevoort. Yeah, that, that definitely comes to, comes through. Yeah, yeah, maybe 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 I was a little bit too too fulsome in my praise, but Gansevoort is just a very impressive guy, and along with he was very fortunate to have a superb second in command, Lieutenant Colonel Willett, and they just make a superb command team, and they, you know, you just look at what they're doing. I mean, they're they're working their guys hard in the weeks before defending, you know, get, uh, improving the defenses, blocking Wood Creek, which was one of the routes that British have to take as they're coming toward Danwicks. I mean, he's stockpiling food. He digs a well within the confines of the fort just in case he can't get fresh water outside the fort. I mean, he's doing, making all these great decisions along the way. And he's got his men, you know, trust him. I mean, he's doing everything that, that you have to do. And, and then during the camp, during the uh, siege itself, I mean, he's refusing threats to, to sur- you know, if he doesn't surrender, they're going to put the entire garrison to, to the sword and all this. And he's just saying, eh, you know, do your best. I'm not going to surrender. You know, he's just, I mean, just a very impressive guy. 
Now, Gansevoort, you know, I would say that he's he's mainly at the tactical level, but he he displays absolutely superb grip at the tactical level. He's really, really, really not at the operational and, and strategic. He's not an operational and strategic level commander, but his successful defense of Stanwix had certainly had huge operational and strategic impacts, though. So I'm just I'm just a huge fan of Gansevoort and Willett. I think they. Uh, they really showed just absolutely superb leadership. And when you compare it with, uh, you know, the commander at, at Ticonderoga, I mean, there's, well, there's, there's really no comparison between the two. No, certainly it is night and day. As you mentioned, you know, while Gansevoort is defending Fort Stanwix, Burgoyne's forces are just attriting at an incredible rate. Ultimately, he, con- he decides to keep going. Do you think that there was anything that could have made him halt in his advance into the maw of what is becoming an ever-growing American army? Or at that point, he had just the blinders on. There's there's no, no information, no data could have come to light that would have dissuaded him or, or caused him to turn back. Well, you know, he, he certainly had the data. <laughs> By the time of Bennington... You know, the data is all there. And in, in my conclusion, I talk a little bit about that. You know, sometimes it's, it's you know, we look back over the, the in this case, the centuries or, uh, you know, you look back at the Civil War and you go, boy, it's, you know, why did they make the decision? It's so obvious. Well, it's usually obvious to you 200 years later. You've got all the information. So it's it's you, you got to you got to look at what information did they have at the time. And so you, you bring up a great point. By the time of Bennington. He's got all the information he needs to make to make some some decisions. Yet he doesn't make the the obvious decision, which is to fall back to Ticonderoga. You know, by the time he gets to Bennington, he's lost basically the entire force that he sent to Bennington. He's as you said, he's attrited. He's he's lost a lot of folks from desertion and also trying to guard his line of communications back up to Ticonderoga. More and more Americans are coming out. By this time, even though he knew back in April, or May rather, he knew that, that Howe wasn't coming up the river. By the time he gets to Bennington, or, or the area, it's actually he's actually at Fort Miller when he sends his, his men off to Bennington. By the time he gets to Fort Miller, he's, he's gotten follow-on letters from Howe saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm on my way to Philadelphia. So, I mean, that's confirmation that you know, Howe's not coming up the river. So, so he's got all the information he needs to make the logical decision. And by this time, the logical decision is you've got to preserve the army. You can't afford to, to hazard that army. But instead, he continues on and ultimately he'll cross the Hudson River, which is you know, probably the most fateful decision he makes, which is after, you know, a couple weeks after Bennington and continues to head south. He had the opportunity. He could have, he could have pulled back. But he doesn't, and this this also brings up why does he why is he constantly delaying? You know, he takes Ticonderoga, he moves the army to Skeensboro, and then he sits, and then he moves to Fort Edward very very slowly. Now, granted, Schuyler has has obstructed the route, and he's you know conducting ambushes and things like that. That slows him down. But he gets to Fort Edward, and he basically sits for a while. Then he moves on to Fort Miller, and he sits. You know, why is he doing that? I think early on when he gets to Skeensboro, 
a lot of that is just, you know, overconfidence. He's, ah, you know, the Americans are scattered. Their morale has been shot by our great victory at Ticonderoga. I can move at a fairly leisurely pace. There's no sense in, in rushing things. I'll make sure I'll get all my logistics in order and then I'll move on. And then as he gets deeper and deeper into New York, as he heads farther and farther south, his logistical issues become more and more acute. So now he almost has to stop and gather more supplies before he moves on, which just slows him down further. So by the time he gets to Bennington again, he's got all this information. He's got all the information he needs. At that point, he, I mean, he had to move, he had to fall back to Ticonderoga, yet he continues on. And, and it, I, it just, he's laser focused on his, his orders. His orders say, you know, go to Albany, even though there is that caveat in the orders saying use your discretion. But he, he's focused on, I've got to get to Albany, I've got to get to Albany, and so he, he continues on. It's, I think it's a, it's a combination of vanity, overconfidence, his inexperience as an independent commander. It's just it's, it's a, a series of, of things that are, that are playing on his mind. One thing that the book really drives home or brings to life, I should say, is the old adage that war is 90% boredom and 10% sheer terror. Yeah. And it's, you know, because it seems, and, and, and you, you do a, a fantastic job illustrating this, that there's all this time and that time is this resource, as you just mentioned, which Burgoyne initially feels he has a lot of and therefore seems to mismanage. Yeah. Conversely, though, Gates and and Washington are building up their forces and building up their forces and waiting for Burgoyne to come to them at the at the climactic campaigns at, you know, Freeman's Farm and Bemis Heights. There seems to be this tension between Gates, who wants to just let Burgoyne's British wave break upon the American rock and someone who Washington sends up, Benedict Arnold who many of our listeners are familiar with, who is a go-getter. And he just wants to go out there and grab them by the jugular and shake them until they're done. Right. Gates obviously gets the the credit for the, the fantastic victory. But what role does Arnold play in ultimately bringing about Burgoyne's defeat? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Arnold's Arnold's role is is absolutely huge. I mean, it's it's absolutely critical. When you look at the Saratoga campaign, once Arnold gets there, I mean, he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. I mean, he's he won the relief. He leads the relief force that Schuyler sends to Fort Stanwix. He's the guy who's conducting, you know, ambush. He's directing. I should say he's not personally conducting. He's directing ambushes and and blocking routes. And he's, you know, the the guy is everywhere. He's the, he's just a dynamo. This this huge amount of energy and and incredible aggressiveness. Gates is not that guy. Gates is is more. I don't want. He's. I don't want to say plotter. That sounds pejorative. But he's he's very much a defensive minded general, and he you know he's a former British Army officer. He knows what the British can do, and so he also knows the you know what what the Americans can do and what they're not as good at, and so he wants to avoid the big kind of maneuver battles that that might have a huge payoff but also have a huge risk. But that's the sort of thing that, that, that Arnold wants to do. So you have the different, so it comes down to, I think, the difference between a division commander, that's, that's Arnold, 
and the commander in chief. That's Gates. I mean, they have two different roles. And even though they they clash after they have this personality, you know, a, a huge disagreement and really quarrel after the Battle of Freeman's Farm, they complement each other pretty well, I think, because Gates is able to harness what Arnold can do, you know, aggressively attack the enemy, you know, uh, maneuver. He can sense where where there's there's you know weaknesses in the enemy uh, positions, all those different things. Arnold's very very good at. But Gates is more of a, you know, the manager, let's uh, go on the defense and let the British come to us kind of guy. And this is a case where Gates is looking more at the big picture. I have to protect Albany. I have to protect the, the, the route down the Hudson River. And the only way Burgoynes can, can get to Albany is, I've got, is, is on the Hudson River or the Albany Road. And that's, of course, where he sets up his defensive positions on Venus Heights. So, Again, you've got you've got Gates thinking more big picture, and and uh, Arnold being more laser focused. And we've got to go, you know, we got to go fight him and beat him. Uh, and so they 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 complement each other pretty well. Gate or Arnold though is absolutely critical for the the success of this campaign. No no doubt. Not only because of all the things he does before the actual two big battles at the end, but because of the conduct of the battles themselves. Of course. It, at Freeman Freeman's farm, he's sort of he's sort of Gates's eyes and ears as he's managing the battle out on the battlefield while Gates is is back in the main positions. I mean that's where a commander in chief probably needs to be, and so his trusted subordinate is is sort of managing the battle. At the at the Battle of Bemis Heights, you've got a very similar situation there, where even though they had this big quarrel in between the two battles, they've They've patched it up enough to, to work together pretty well at the second battle. And this is where Arnold really shows his, his, his grip at the tactical level in that he takes basically control of the battle and uh, on the ground and in the midst of the fighting and, and personally will lead sort of the climactic actions at the Battle of Bemis Heights, which will ultimately force Burgoyne to fall back. So, so they complement each other quite well. Even though they have this disagreement, which, by the way, they had they had worked very very well together in the 1776 campaign. So, in fact, Gates defended Arnold against a bunch of detractors. So they had worked very well together, and it was only after it was only during the the end of the Saratoga campaign where they have uh, a falling out. Now the. Saratoga campaign, as we all know, sorry, spoiler alert to any listeners who don't know this, the that the campaign comes to a close with Burgoyne's surrender to Gates and the signing of the Saratoga Convention, October 1777. You know, as this is considered by, you know, histo- every historian who's ever considered the American Revolution to be a pivotal moment, not least of which because it brings France openly into the war and fundamentally changes the strategic outlook for the British. But you make two other arguments that I wanted to focus on really quickly. One is that the defeat at Saratoga actually did very little to alter British perceptions of of the war, at least in the American theater, and that there's a direct line between Saratoga and the Southern strategy and Cornwallis's ultimate surrender. And then the second point is that perhaps counterintuitively, given you know the praise we just gave to Gates 
the battle act, the victory at Saratoga actually solidified Washington's position as commander in chief. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on those two outcomes. I guess I would push back a little bit on your first point, because I think, you know, Saratoga caused the British to do a lot of soul searching strategically on what they wanted to do in the future. And I think that Saratoga forced them to, to really do a, a complete scrub of their, their military strategy. And then once the French come in, which, of course, is a direct result of Saratoga, they have to basically dump the strategy that they, they came up with after Saratoga and had to come up with a new one, which ultimately will end up being a southern strategy. I mean, that, that wasn't what they were going to go into immediately after Saratoga, but it will ultimately become the southern strategy. So Saratoga, I think, has a, has a, has a big impact on their strategic thinking after, or after, after Saratoga and into the early part of 1778. Certainly through the, the signing of the, the treaties uh, with, with uh, France, our, our signings of the treaty with France. And then the, remind me, what was the – I'm sorry. Oh, that, I mean, what, that's, that's quite all right. I, I shouldn't have thrown two questions at, at the same time. No, that's okay. Actually, pausing briefly on that, my thought was that you know we had uh, Stanley Carpenter on – the podcast a little while ago, and he wrote Southern Gambit about Cornwallis' strategy. And one thing I, I thought that was interesting and in what I was thinking about in, in that question was the idea that even though it forced them to go a different route, one of the key elements or assumptions in both strategies was the idea that there was going to be this explosion of loyalist support. That doesn't materialize in Saratoga. It's clearly right in front of their face. This, this doesn't exist. Right. And they transpose those assumptions onto their conduct in the Southern campaign, that, that's what I was thinking about there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it, and that's, you know, when we, we teach here at the Army War College, we teach campaign planning and strategic you know, planning. And, and one of the most important things you have to do as a strategic planner is you have to carefully, carefully manage your assumptions or examine your, your assumptions and, and do it in a, in a, you know, in an even-handed way. You, you obviously always have to make assumptions. You don't have perfect information, so you can't come up with a perfect plan. There's always got to be assumptions, but you have to very carefully examine your assumptions, and you have to ask yourself, what if that assumption isn't, doesn't turn out to be true? What if the loyalists don't turn out in droves in, in upstate New York or in the, the southern colonies? What, what happens if they don't? How is that going to impact our military operations? And, and so that's when you develop what we call today branches and sequels. OK, if, if this assumption does not hold true, this is what we're going to have to do. And of course, that's what that's what the Brits don't don't do for either the Saratoga campaign or the Southern strategy. That's a great point, Scott. So the, the second question, and then this is kind of the penultimate question, is that Gates gets credit for the victory. But one of the legacies of the victory that you highlight is perhaps counterintuitively that it actually solidifies Washington's position as commander in chief. How does that transpire? Yeah, well, after after the Saratoga campaign, of course, Gates is the toast of the uh, of the American, you know, of America, of the USA, and so he's he, you know, he's won the first big victory. You know, Washington, about all he's done up to this point is he won the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Really important to be sure, but there's small little battles. Here is Gates. He's captured an entire British army. Oh, my God. And so you have this, you know, you have a faction in Congress that starts to say, well, maybe we've got the wrong commander in chief. And you have 
certain elements in the army that are thinking the same thing. And so you, this is the start of the, you know, the, the famous so-called Conway cabal. And as I, I don't really come down on whether there was a, a, a really organized conspiracy to try to oust Washington or just it was just a series of folks who started asking questions about, you know, maybe Gates would be the right guy to be commander in chief because he's just won this, this incredible victory and maybe Washington is not the right guy. So you, you have this, you know, there's a, there's a Syrian, I, I, I try to try to talk about this, where you have this series of letters that come to Washington's attention that are either written to Gates, by Gates, or, or about Gates, uh, by, by some of Gates' friends that talk about, that disparage Washington and talk about maybe Gates needs to be the guy. And, and Washington, and of course this, this gets around, and it's, it's known in Congress, it's known in the Army. And what Washington does is he skillfully works kind of this inner office politics in the Army where he's going to confront Gates. Uh, this is, you know, by, through letters. He'll confront Gates and basically say, hey, what's the deal with all this? And Gates at first, he'll, he'll basically lie, saying, yeah, I didn't know anything about, uh, about any of this stuff. And then he'll come back and he'll say, well, you know, I think, I think these were forgeries. And then, you know, Washington very skillfully said, well, you know, I know I don't think they're forgeries. And, and so just back and forth. And finally, he forces Gates to, to apologize. So, you know, and all this and, and of course, Washington is letting this be known in Congress and so forth. And so by the winter of 1778, once Gates, once Washington is able to maneuver Gates into apologizing to him, I mean, that's. He pretty much has, has sort of solidified his position as uh, as commander in chief, and a lot of people, even some of Gates's allies, look at Gates and go, "Yeah, that was pretty that was pretty underhanded." And so, you know, maybe maybe Gates isn't the right guy, even though Gates still is enjoying a lot of popularity. He'll end up being named as commander of the Southern Department, which of course he'll he'll squander at the Battle of Camden later on. But I think Washington really, through his skillful, you know, political acumen, not only is he a, you know, a really good uh, strategic level commander in chief with, with outstanding grip at the strategic level and the operational level, I think he's also very astute politically, and he's able to outmaneuver Gates during during all these machinations during late 1777 and early 1778. So that was the point I was trying to make there. Yeah, I, I definitely think the book really does a fantastic job weaving together not only the political implications of the, the entire campaign, both for the British and the Americans, but also really going into the nitty gritty of the, the internal politics that are motivating and shaping the perceptions of the individual actions throughout. You know, one of the things we say at the, at the War College here, and we tell our students on day one, because the students we get are very senior lieutenant colonels and colonels. And so they'll soon be moving on to, you know, it's a very small percentage, but but our all of our generals are drawn from our graduates uh, at the War College. So, so a lot of them will be moving on to positions at the strategic level. And we tell them, you know, at the, at the higher levels, you know, most of them have been very successful at the tactical level or they wouldn't be at the Army War College, which is a selective, you know, place. And, and we tell them when they, when they move on to these positions at the strategic level, the most important thing is relationships. 
you know, building relationships, not necessarily being best buddies, but building good working relationships. And I hope I brought that out in, in the book. At the strategic level, relationships are absolutely critical. And if you've got, you know, dysfunctional ones like the Brits have in, in several instances between Germain and some of the generals, you're going to have problems, both developing strategy and executing strategy. So, and, and it's not that the Americans didn't have those issues. They did. Clearly, you know, we, we just talked about one between Gates and Washington. But the fact that they were able to work through them better than the Brits, I think, gave them uh, an advantage in 1777. Kevin, you've been very generous with your time. And we, we actually just kind of touched on my, my last question. But final question I was going to ask is, are there any strategic conclusions that modern military planners might draw from a close examination of Saratoga campaign, relationships being one? Are there, are there any others that you would add to that? Yeah, I think I, I try to pull some of that together in the in the conclusion. And I think even though they didn't call it strategy and they didn't call it strategy formulation like we do today, that's exactly what they were doing in 1777 and then following on after after the, the disaster at, at Saratoga, the Brits are doing the same thing in early 1778. They're doing strategy formulation just like we do today. And and the importance of examining assumptions. We already talked about that. The importance of having a clearly defined, decisive, and attainable objective. I mean, knowing exactly what you want, making sure everybody understands what the objective is. And then making sure that your strategies are coordinated and they're not operating at cross purposes, which in the end, that's exactly what was happening with the British in 1777. They had two separate strategies when they were supposed to be one coherent coordinated strategy. You had two separate uncoordinated strategies that in some ways were actually operating across purposes. That's a recipe for disaster. So I think there's there's a lot of things that a modern strategist can look at from this campaign and say, boy, that, that is something we want to avoid, or they did a pretty good job there. And that's that's something we need to emulate. Kevin, thank you again for joining us today. Well, Scott, I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Those are super fun questions. Thanks. And to all our listeners, this is Scott Lipkowitz. On behalf of New Books in Military History, thanks for listening.